0: Welcome, listeners, to the NK News podcast, recorded in Seoul on Monday, November 12, 2018. Today, I am joined by Thomas Fissler to talk about development aid in the DPRK. But before we get into the discussion, I want to tell you all about the new NK shop. NK News annual shop is back in business for the holiday season. Chad and the team have really stepped up stepped up their game this year and have extremely limited edition retro T-shirts, 2019 calendars, postcards, And my personal favorite, the Andy Warhol-inspired North Korea canned goods posters and vintage DPRK travel posters. Listeners to this podcast can get 10% off their entire purchase by using the code NKPODCAST10 that's NK Podcast10 or one word at the checkout. Just go to nkshop.org to see what's in stock this year. They'd make really great gifts for any North Korea watcher. Today's guest, Thomas Fisler, was retired from the Swiss Federal Department of Foreign Affairs. He was Switzerland's resident representative to North Korea and director of cooperation for the Swiss Agency for Development and Cooperation, SDC based in Pyongyang from 2013 to 2017. In this capacity, he was in charge of Switzerland's humanitarian aid program, focusing on food security, agroforestry, water and sanitation, and disaster risk reduction. Mr. Fissler has a diploma in Corporate Business Management from the Swiss Technical Training and Management Institute, a diploma in Civil Engineering and Construction Management from the Swiss Technical College of Applied Sciences in Civil Engineering and Construction, as well as the IRF Diploma in Senior Road Management from the University of Birmingham. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you. Welcome, yes. Thanks for being here today. So you worked in North Korea for four years in humanitarian aid and development assistance, but before going to the DPRK, you had performed similar work in Pakistan, Nepal, and in India. So I'm interested to hear from you in which ways this prepa- your previous experience prepared you for your time in North Korea.
1: Before I went to North Korea, uh, someone told me that whenever you get there, Forget what you know in this world, and I would, by today, somewhat undersign that kind of statement.
0: Wow. So in what ways did you feel unprepared for your time in North Korea? Good question.
1: Uh, I I didn't know how to deal with a broader context. You know, what will I be allowed to say? Uh, How close will I be watched? That kind of thing was very, at the beginning, very uncomfortable.
0: If you were to meet your successor or anybody, in fact, who was going to work in development or any kind of aid in North Korea, what would you tell them? What kind of advice would you give that you didn't have?
1: I think keep on asking questions. That's the... The, the key I would recommend to everyone, and ask the same question many different people uh-huh. to get close to an answer. You can ask five people and get yeah. five different answers.
0: Okay. Could you tell us about some of the different projects and programs that you oversaw as head of SDC in North Korea?
1: As you mentioned, we were engaged in the WASH project, so that's water and sanitation, in mainly in rural communities, and uh, went along with some hygiene promotion Children learning how to wash their hands and stuff like that. Uh, so that was our role. We did that together with, uh, strangely enough, the ministry of uh, city management. Why they are in charge of the rural communities? Uh, I never really found out.
0: So okay, hygiene promotion. Let's talk about that for a minute. There, um, you know, North Korea. They uh, they pride themselves on their uh, provision of public health services to the population maybe it's not as effective as they want it to be but they certainly talk about that a lot and you'll see that in their propaganda they even send doctors to to african countries in the past it was like a free charity service now they do it you know to make foreign currency i was i'm surprised to hear that there are still people or children in north korea who don't know to wash their hands is that not something that they are taught uh-
1: I think it's necessary for young childrens, definitely, and it's it's occasionally also needed right across the board. I, I would say it's also needed in our
0: society once in a while. Sure, that it's always good to get that message. Yes. So, so how did the SDC then uh, promote that message in North Korea? I mean, obviously, you weren't the one who directly went to the schools to show young children how to wash hands. So, what's the the practical? Part well, it, of was,
1: that? it was done through teachers. It was done through posters mainly. Oh. We would broadly make together with the with the north koreans uh, appropriate posters which then would be distributed as leaflets or posters in schools leaflets in the houses and so on it was maybe also about uh, a- understanding the meaning and the importance of having access to clean water
0: now i've been following north korea for about 20 years and it always surprises me that uh, water and sanitation seem to be perennial problems uh, in the DPRK, that there are very, well, there's a, a wide range of different organizations who have gone into North Korea and who are working on uh, water supply and uh, and wastewater management. I wonder why is this? Uh, this is, on the one hand, this is a country with nuclear weapons and, and intercontinental ballistic missiles. On the other hand, there are many rural communities without an effective water supply. Uh, can you comment on that?
1: It's definitely such that there is a Great scarcity of access to clean water, not only in very rural communities, but also in sort of more urban settings. Uh, um, uh, Even Pyongyang at times has uh, water shortages. Mm. Uh, And so I think it's all about access to to clean water. They all go to rivers and nearby uh, sources and so on. Uh, that's possible. But in winter,
0: this is also
1: a very tough one, too.
0: So what is the major source of, of clean water supply in rural areas? Is it from underground uh, water sources?
1: Yeah, they're basically the usual two. It's the, the springs up in the hills, and then there's the uh, groundwater. Depending on the location, either one is, is is an option.
0: So was the Swiss Agency for Development and Cooperation, were you uh, also helping to dig wells or clean out wells or things like that?
1: Yes, we would occasionally make some refurbishment on existing wells and we would make a pipe system in older communities, doing a pipe system, groundwater fed or... Uh, With gravity,
0: And in the cities, was that also uh, mainly groundwater for clean water supply?
1: Yes, to my knowledge, most of the cities have uh, deep wells or shallow wells from which they pump the water. But then the usual problem that the the pumps are not functioning, the electricity is scarce and, and things like that.
0: So when Pyongyang has a water shortage, it's because of these problems that you mentioned, pumps and electricity, for example.
1: Uh, Yes, yes. And at times, uh, especially in the rainy season, I think the treatment stations are a little bit overloaded because the river is bringing very, very uh, muddy and sandy water.
0: And what about um, treatment of wastewater? Uh, Is there any system of filtration or treatment or or, uh, chemical or other treatment to kind of take out some of the larger impurities? Or does it just go straight into the, the river and, and the ocean?
1: Yes, in, uh, if it's a pipe system, unfortunately it does. Yes, I think Pyongyang does have some treatment stations, but other cities don't, and uh, so it goes direct. But uh, um, the majority is still served by pit latrines. The solid waste in the pit latrines is of great value as fertilizers, and mm-hmm. it's being it's being used uh, uh, to 100% as that. Uh, for me, something new. Which uh, in other countries I haven't experienced it to that level.
0: Okay, so pit latrines you mentioned. What about septic tanks? Do they use them as well?
1: Yes. So by pit latrines, septic tanks, them different kind of technical solutions ah. to to these things. Yes, uh, and then whatever is uh, um, left as a solid waste is being. Uh, um, brought onto the farmland.
0: Now, I've read that that can be dangerous using night soil for fertilizer um, because it can spread uh, pathogens. I I don't know if I'm thinking of cholera or or what. Can you tell us more
1: about that? If if the cycle is sort of too short in terms of time, this is a big issue. So we promoted very much what we call the, the double pit latrine, so that the effluents can settle down and uh, biodegrade itself over, uh, let's say, five, six months. And that's then, quite long. Yes. And then so that's where you have two pits. You use one actively, and the other one is to settle down and dig it out, empty uh-huh. it, and then you change again. Uh, that's been proven to be a very successful system.
0: As the uh, the head of the um, the agency, or the representative in North Korea, did you mainly have to visit sites to sort of check how projects were going and how the development was?
1: Yes, I think that was the, for me, the interesting part that I had access to all these different communities across the country. And I equally had access and discussions on sort of more like uh, technical or policy levels as well. So it was sort of the, the from from the, the base to the top, I was able to, to get in touch with everyone. And that was maybe the interesting thing to connect the the experiences out in the rural areas into higher levels.
0: When you say the base at the top, are you talking about the different levels of, of North Korean government, the local yes. level and the... Okay, yes. great, because I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, what was your experience of working with the North Korean government? What were some surprisingly easy parts?
1: I think the efficiency. If they tell you this is what we're going to do, give an example, uh, digging a couple of kilometres of pipeline or in the agroforestry project do some tree planting, uh, it's it's eventually done overnight, almost. It's mm. it's the way they're able to mobilize workforces is yeah. impressive. It's definitely impressive.
0: And what was surprisingly difficult about working with the North Korean government? <laughs> understanding, understanding the
1: do's and don'ts. Um, getting to learn that at the very end, everyone is 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 loyal to the system rather than loyal to a foreigner. And that makes it occasionally quite difficult.
0: So you mean the people who worked within your office, because they're all citizens of the state, they're always going to be more loyal to the North Korean government than to whatever your agency tells them to do? Yes, clearly.
1: Understandably, though, as well.
0: Yes. Were there ever times when you had uh, meetings or negotiations with the North Korean government and you tried to be stubborn to say, listen, this is very important, I have to go in this way, uh, but, you know, the answer that you received back was, well, you know, we can't do it that way because X, Y, Z, or uh, or or maybe no reason, just we can't do it that way.
1: Well, the principle on my side will be that we are very transparent in what uh, do we want and why. I think key is for everyone to understand that there's no hidden message in in the way we go about, and that already is a excellent door opener, but... Uh, as I, I give an example. Why is it, isn't it possible to work in Jagang province mm. where uh, no agency is actually able to, to work? So then the formal answer in a meeting would be uh, f- for reasons of national security. Foreign agencies can't work there. Full stop. And then uh, that's the kind of answer. No need to ask further.
0: Uh, was there ever an experience that you had where you felt uh, after long negotiations long discussions that you got what you wanted that you were able to accomplish something that initially it was uh, not a, not possible but then it became possible
1: working in difficult accessible very remote uh, villages off the beaten track, off the main roads. You know, you drive uh, whatever, one full day out of Pyongyang, and you've got to go th- three hours on a very bad road to the to the last village in the valley. That kind of thing over time was possible.
0: So you mean, uh, uh, in the beginning, the government didn't want you to go to those small villages, but in the end, you are able to go there?
1: Yes, that would be... One of the examples, yes.
0: Is that partly because there seems to be a tension in North Korea? On the one hand, the government wants to show its best side. It wants to show you know, uh, the good side to foreigners. On the other hand, North Korea needs that help, needs that development assistance.
1: I think that's the conflict many of the government officials have, indeed. And the more it gets operational, the more they are keen to show you... Uh, Um, their actual needs and are also very much welcoming all the support. Once you're on an operational level, um, they're much more ready to to discuss real problems and, and find joint solutions. It's a nice experience, basically.
0: Yeah, now your organisation. You said that has been there for more than twenty years now. So, do you feel that by now that there is a, a good working relate, a good development of uh, of trusts with the North Korean government, or do they have to start from zero again every time there is a new uh, resident representative put in place?
1: No, I think uh, clearly Switzerland has an excellent uh, image within uh, uh, North Korea within the the government. Uh, because I think we are known not to have any political agenda in what we do, that uh, our aid, humanitarian aid, is genuinely for the sake of and the benefit of the people. And in that sense, we're recognized in the way we do and what we do very, very highly. Uh, One thing maybe is also essential to know is that over the years we've been steadily uh, providing aid, and this is occasionally... uh, not so much known, but in the range of, uh, and it would vary a bit uh, between 15 and 25% of the entire official aid coming into the mm-hmm. country. So in that sense, uh, STC is a big player in terms of funding.
0: That is, that's very high, yeah. Uh, I, I imagine since you lived in Pyongyang for four years, you probably knew a lot of the people from other organi- uh, outside aid organizations who are working in North Korea.
1: Yes, of course. You get to know everyone, all different people from the embassies, from other aid organizations. There aren't many. Huh? There are basically six INGOs operational mm. As a bilateral donor, being in the same time implementing agency, that was an exception. I think only Switzerland is is doing that, a double role of donor and executing its own Mm. projects. Uh, Also had some kind of structured uh, uh, what's called sector working groups where we would join like, let me say, a a wash sector working group where we would discuss and align uh, issues in common.
0: And did you find that your experiences aligned very much with their own experiences, or were there some organizations that for some reason had uh, you know curious uh, exceptions?
1: Of course, I believe that we were uh, in many ways uh, privileged by the way the government uh, would treat us, welcome us. We had, for instance, no limits or restruct- restrictions in doing field visits, whereas some of the INGOs would be limited in that sense in in terms of where they go or the the number of times they would be allowed to go.
0: Even though there were no limits, were you um, encouraged or instructed to uh, officially notify the North Korean government before you made a site visit, or could you go wherever you wanted to, when you wanted to? Uh,
1: It was usually discussed in our weekly staff meetings, and... uh, um, that's the usual programming that you you plan a week ahead at least. Right. So we wouldn't discuss on a Friday where to go on a Monday. Definitely not. And so, yes, it does need some lead time for a few, a few days. You need some, some sort of passes to, to drive on the highway. These things are needed. But my staff would do that. And I would not be involved in it. It would practically never be a problem.
0: Uh, apart from your, um, your daily work, what are some other unique challenges and obstacles of living in the DPRK? Yeah,
1: well, on the positive note, I think it's an excellent experience. Uh, the whole community of foreigners is like a big village. And mm. so the social bonding is, is very nice. You meet each other multiple times on social events, but also on, on more formal meetings. And this, over time, gives you a feeling of being at home.
0: Yeah, I, I got actually I heard a very similar answer from uh, Ambreen from the uh, the Pakistani embassy in the yes. podcast I did with who, her a couple of months yes,
1: ago. Yes, who was a good friend of of my wife as ah, well. Yes,
0: yeah, and she said also that it, it it feels like a like a small village, like a community. Uh, everyone talks to everyone clearly, uh, uh, and that's nice. And that's
1: also across the board of all the different embassies who. Maybe otherwise would not that much talk to each other uh, because of their political uh, background.
0: But I, I wonder. I mean, th- that must be partly, at least partly, a, a function of being basically socially excluded from interactions with North Koreans.
1: Fully agree. That was definitely the, diff- the difficult part. With limitations, over time, possible yes, but not easy.
0: How many locals worked in your office? We had around, well, if you count each and every one, about 15. Were you, I mean, did you go out to dinner with them sometimes after work or or play golf or tennis or go for a mountain climbing adventure or something?
1: Yes, we would. We would do um, events together, outings. We would go occasionally for a a dinner or a beer or have even a party in our compound. Oh,
0: and that, that was possible?
1: That was possible, definitely. I recall even uh, making a party in our compound in inviting other people from, hmm. the, from the ministries we work together.
0: Okay. Were there any social things that you tried to do that were not possible?
1: Inviting North Koreans to my apartment for a dinner would have been difficult. Maybe they would have come if there would be at least uh, two, three, or four in a group. Yeah. individually, no. Mm, sure. Yeah.
0: I'd like to talk a little bit about your work in disaster risk reduction in the DPRK. That sounds very interesting. Which types of disaster were was the SDC mainly focused on?
1: Okay, was basically expanding the agroforestry project into um, issues like um, slope stabilization in a broader sense, uh, um, erosions of of uh, hillsides, and then also issues of of um, river embankment. Uh, um, erosion, which needed to be uh, addressed.
0: Right. I understand that uh, uh, deforestation became a big issue in the 1990s with the uh, the lack of access to fuel, heating and cooking fuel. So, how is that reforestation project going in North Korea these days? Is it? I think it, it's it working a, well.
1: Yes, it's on an excellent footing. And over time, I think we were able to get to a level which I always say uh, the best you can achieve in in a development project is if uh, policy follows practice and mm. not the other way around, meaning we were we were able to show uh, how to do it differently, and out of that a national agroforestry policy was uh, established and approved by the legislation, which I believe was a big success.
0: Okay. And were you able to actually to ever visit uh, an area after a disaster happened?
1: Yes. uh, Back in 2016, we had this big typhoon up in the north, an area called Musan, an area which prior to that event was not accessible. And so, yes, I was there multiple times. After, immediately after disaster and then later on as well.
0: And was the damage there made worse because of uh, deforestation? Clearly, yes. Uh, made worse.
1: However, if uh, there would have been all well forested, there would have been still quite a, an impact on such a typhoon.
0: Because that you mentioned slope stability. Lack of slope stability, can that lead to uh, avalanches and mudslides and things yeah, like it, that?
1: It's then the mudslides, it's the flooding, it's the destruction of the uh, lower-level agricultural land being uh, made not usable anymore.
0: So what was done to help Musan or the area around there after the typhoon? How how did they repair well, in, that?
1: In the, well, there in the first instance, it was necessary to um, reconstruct housing for mm. 130,000 families. So and that was a, an impressive exercise, uh, uh, once again, the level of the the way they can mobilize labor force to achieve those things was, for me, outstanding, yeah. remarkable. They literally built uh, housing units for a uh, hundred and thirty thousand families within two and a half, three months.
0: Now, did SDC take any direct part in, in that project? Yes, we did.
1: Along with other organizations, key was to provide the roofing material, CGI sheets, this, uh, the corrugated iron sheets. Yeah. They're kind of powder-coated or zinc-coated. Zinc. Coat, yep. And um, we, they are not produced in North Korea, mm. so... We had to import them from China, and I think that was the, the big task, the major challenge, uh, uh, how to import, uh, I think in our case, was something like 600 tons of those roofing materials.
0: Now, under the current sanctions regime, that would be almost impossible, wouldn't it, because almost uh, any med- metal product can <laughs> be brought into North Korea. Is that right?
1: It, it, was, it was already difficult at the time. I would say today it is uh, certainly more difficult but uh, there's always some ways and some mm. solutions.
0: So this was in 2016, is that correct? Yes,
1: late 2016, yes. And
0: when did you leave the DPRK? Late, late. Uh, what
1: was it, uh, October 2016.
0: about exactly
1: 12 months ago.
0: Okay, so the, the, hev- the really heavy sanctions were already in place by the time you left. Were you noticing any of that impacting your projects?
1: Yes, it started impacting uh, us in the delivery of certain materials, Issues like submersible water pumps. There was also increasingly a self, uh, how do I say, self restriction by some companies, not wanting to be engaged in any ways with North Korea. So we felt, and I learned from my colleagues that these things have become more difficult, increasingly more difficult over the last one year.
0: Now that you've left the DPRK, could you share some of your own? What do you consider your own successes or satisfactory outcomes of your time there? What do you look back on with uh, with gladness?
1: Okay, maybe there's uh, there's the one thing, and uh, I brought this from my experiences in Nepal is the introduction of of gabions, which are kind of weaved wire baskets which you can fill up with stones and then uh, make retaining walls and uh, stop soil erosion. So this kind of technology, how to weave those gabions or wired baskets is a technology which was not really known in the North Korea we applied it on large scale and I, I sort of visionary think that in 20 years from now this is this is going to be key in preventing erosion
0: that's interesting I've never heard of that word before could you tell us how to spell it gapion
1: okay I'll have to look that
0: up later on so that's a, a kind of a wire mesh basket in which you put stones and rocks and you can use that as a kind of retaining wall yes that's right
1: yes and then over time vegetation takes over uh, if after 20 years you know if it's galvanized wires it, it, it stays 20 or more years and uh, eventually settles in vegetation roots can these be
0: made go- by by hand or do they have
1: to yes, be machine produced? Yes, that, that's the interesting part that uh, it can be... And Nepal does that large scale oh. over the last 30, 40 years. They can be hand-woven and that's a technology you need to know how to do it. Yeah. And so we've had people going to Nepal and we have had, had actually a Nepali coming to North Korea to introduce how to weave those baskets.
0: Do they have a a sufficient supply of that kind of wire in North Korea or does that need to be imported from somewhere?
1: It was imported from China. Though I think uh, they produced it as well in North Korea, it was maybe an issue of quality which Mm -hmm. made us importing it from Outside
0: uh, now that you've left, what does SDC do in the DPRK? Is there a successor who's followed on, and are the same projects being continued, or are there new projects?
1: By and large, it's the same projects um, which are continuing. There is a, a bit of shift to, uh, or expanding the issue in agroforestry, as mentioned on. Disaster risk uh, reduction. Those are the things WASH uh, projects continue because it's a great need. We are trying to bring in aspects of protection into some of our projects. Let me give you an example. We're, we're fundi- funding Handicap International to assist uh, people with disabilities, connect that to disaster risk reduction. You can imagine that uh, people which have um, hearing. Difficulties won't be able to to hear announcements. Right, yes, yes. Co- connecting some of these things and protection, maybe in a in a broader sense, also on uh, making people aware on the principles of human rights. And I, I'm not talking it in a political sense, but human rights such as access to clean water, access to food, access to health. These are the basic human rights, which. Uh, we believe that North Korea has its obligation, which still needs to be improved.
0: When you mentioned uh, in North Korea, in discussions with North Korean officials, and you mentioned words like human rights, even in the context of access to water, access to sanitation, how, how is the reaction there? I mean, are they sensitive to that?
1: If it's discussed on a more informal manner, uh, more with people of which I was dealing with on an operational level, no problem there. If it gets to higher level meetings, then language matters and then it's maybe a different issue.
0: What is the value added that uh, international aid and development organizations can do in North Korea that, for example, uh, South Korean aid organizations probably cannot?
1: Yeah, I think we're, f- we're free of any political agenda of which any aid from South Korea would would have an aspect to it. We can deliver aid with no other rational than helping the people.
0: We're in this uh, strange time period now in which uh, strict international sanctions are still on, but relations are improving, at least in terms of image and and rhetoric. So what do you feel are the current and future prospects for cooperation with the DPRK government?
1: I think every little window of opportunity should be used in in whichever way and uh, um, I think it's also uh, one of the things I'm, I'm, I have been doing now, enabling other aid organizations to get a foot into the door and establish projects. And there seems to be a bit an opening to that. So I facilitate some of these connections th- through the fact that I still have good access uh, uh, to people in the government.
0: Normally, when you want to contact somebody in North Korea, do you have to call them or can you send them an email or do you fax them? How does that work? What are the uh, email. email is possible. Have you seen, during your time, have you seen any organizations or governments doing work in the DPRK that you think is probably not really advisable or is not likely to achieve any desired results? I think
1: definitely anything which um, has a religious background may be difficult to, no, impossible to get something Off the ground. And then we're back again to the hidden agenda. So if you do something out of purely Religious motivation, that would be a wrong approach.
0: The, uh, the Pyongyang University of Science and Technology, have you ever been there?
1: Yes, I've been there a few times, yes. Now
0: that Would that be an example of an organization that's come from a religious, mo- a religious motivation? I don't
1: know. <laughs> um, uh, they would best explain that. But certainly they are very, very limited in what they can deliver. And, and they're very contained. But doing an excellent work, there's no doubt but very controlled, very
0: contained. Isn't that true for almost every organization doing work in North Korea?
1: No, I would say um, we've had quite open doors in uh, where we would be working, um, which communities, which locations, and also in
0: terms of topic. So you felt much less constrained?
1: Definitely, also uh, in terms of... Free movement. I've never had any restrictions in free movement.
0: Uh, now, you, I understand you're now doing work in Bangladesh. Is that correct?
1: Yes, yes. I'm the humanitarian coordinator for the Swiss portfolio in the response to the Rohingya Crisis.
0: So I'm interested. Have you seen the recently published book by Andre Abrahamian that compares the experience of reform and opening in Myanmar and the DPRK? I personally
1: don't think that and I've worked five years in Myanmar prior to going to North Korea. N- not much compares or nothing. I say without reading the book, nothing compares. If there are changes, the the speed of the changes which we experienced at the time in Myanmar, I was there between 2008 and 2013. So I've I've gone through all those uh, transformations there. The speed, those changes happened at the time were unbelievable. And I think that's the only thing which we would have to keep in mind if we talk of changes in North Korea. We would be overwhelmed by the speed.
0: Do do you have any last words of wisdom to share with any organization or person who wants to do any good work in in the DPRK?
1: I've got one personal experience, which I sometimes quote, and I think uh, uh, it describes the situation very well. I once said to one of my colleagues working with me, I said, you know, after four years, if a stage has 10 curtains, I've maybe seen behind, you know, curtain up to the first three or four curtains, and so he said, I will never forget, I said, I know exactly what you mean. I'm maybe on curtain number five, meaning, admittingly, also for a North Korean, there are issues not clear to them.
0: So, Oh, so this, your interlocutor was a North Korean. Yes. who I Give an example, we would drive across
1: the country and I would see something and I would ask, what, what is this mm. over there? And, and then they would answer me, I don't know. And then I would think, like, here we go again. You know, they don't want to tell me and so on. But over the years, I, I started to conclude that in many instances, they really didn't know. I kind of concluded that there's a fundamental difference in the educational system. They learn not to ask questions. I believe for many people, it's more comfortable not to know certain things and so you just blend it out you ignore it i don't want to know this it could maybe put me into troubles
0: it's a different way of seeing the world
1: yes yes never say it's true i've seen it on tv i've read it in the newspaper uh, there's much more behind than that uh, that for me was an eye-opener also uh getting the opportunity to see behind some of these curtains
0: that's great thank you very much that's a good place to leave it there thank you thomas for joining us today thank you and our listeners at home don't forget to check out nkshop.org for all your holiday gift ideas and use the code nkpodcast10 at the checkout for a 10 percent discount and please share this podcast with your friends listen again next time